Welcome to episode 57 of Reading with Rory, the podcast where three friends discuss 300 plus books on the Rory Gilmore reading list. I'm today's host, Liz. I'm Erin. And I'm Sarah. Today, we're going to be discussing A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. that was published in 1980. This book is featured in two episodes of Gilmore Girls. So during season three, they're both, that's when both references were. Um, one, Jess is just reading a copy of the book, so that There's makes sense. There's also a poster of it in season five, FYI. Oh yeah, there is that too. Yes. And the other reference is in Rory's valedictorian speech. So she mentions Ignatius J. Riley. So some people may not even know it's a reference to the book, but those in the know know that that is too. That's a reference to a confederacy of, the dunce, of dunces. If you know, you know. So and part of the podcast, right? Yeah, it's so it's so it's so, you know. Yeah, it's true. Um, Maybe the Paladinos discovered the book when they were writing season three. That's my theory. And they just like were super fans because they like funny things. So I can just see them just kind of getting into that book right then or maybe being fans all along. I I don't know. It has being it has kind of like this like underground cult appeal that I could see appealing to them. Right. Like, it's definitely. um and it's also, I think, kind of like the comedy writer's like token favorite book a little bit. And since they're both comedy writers, I think that I wouldn't be surprised if it was if it was favorites. We'll have to ask them when we meet them one day. Sure, when, they, when we invite them on the podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, well, before we learn more about Ignatius and possibly lose our appetites as we discuss his valve, let's talk about <laughs> what we're eating for our Friday night dinner. What an intro. <laughs> oh, the valve. <laughs> Sarah, what are you eating? Um, Well, my gut health is very opposite of Ignatius J. Riley's. Tonight I'm having um, just a little acai bowl, and it is so yummy, and and I feel like... I feel like acai bowls are actually one of those things that, like, you like to pat yourself on the back because you think you're eating something good for you, but they're too sweet. Like, they just there must be so much sugar in that thing that it's really actually not good for you, but I like to think that it is, so... Well, I think it sounds delicious Thank and healthy. You. It is. It is so. delicious. And I'm choosing to think that it's healthy. So okay. it has it has berries. So there you go. Um, I'm a fan. Erin, <laughs> what are you eating? Um, not an acai bowl. Uh, not anything nearly as healthy as that. I'm eating some Brazilian cheesy bread. because You know those little like rolls, right? Little Brazilian mm-hmm. cheese bread mm-hmm. rolls. Um, because my roommate came home with some from Trader Joe's the other day and they were really good. And so obviously I've been craving them ever since. And I went back to Trader Joe's the other day and I couldn't find them anywhere in the frozen food section. So I finally asked someone and they were like, oh yeah, they're temporarily out of stock, which means they're selling out so fast that they can't keep them stocked. Oh, wow. And, uh, I was like, okay, well that's completely disappointing because it's literally the only reason I came to Trader Joe's tonight. So, um... (laughs) To compensate, I went to Harmon's and found some at Harmon's. So, you know. Um, there you go. There you didn't you go. get anything else at Trader Joe's while you were there? I well, I mean, obviously I did. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like, but wow, my point for going was just to get the, the cheesy bread. Um, well, I'm so sorry. That's I'm disappointing. I'm going to need to try this, but... though. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Brazilian cheesy bread. Okay. I mean, it, have I, you guys ever had it before? It's really bread. good. No. I don't know. I don't think I have. Definitely not from Trader Joe's. Definitely. I mean, I've had, I've had like cheese and bread, and I've had cheesy bread. I mean, I may have had like <laughs> Little Caesars cheese bread yesterday, and was babysitting my nephews. And if there's cheese and bread involved, it's not going to be bad. So I mean, sign sign us up, right? 
It's true. No, it's uh, it's real hard for these these little guys to be bad. No, it's like it's like cheese baked into the. They're like little teeny rolls, basically. Yeah, I know. And it's what like you're cheese about. baked into them. Yeah, mm-hmm. really, really tasty. Um. Well, you made me a little hungry, so thanks, thanks a lot, it's guys. Good, good thing it's Friday night dinner. Time. Both of you. I know. <laughs> um, I just had um a uh, a cheeseburger. So it was not very healthy or good for, you know, my, my gut health or whatever either. But I was just, you know, on the run and it sounded good. And so there it is, a cheeseburger. Classic. Yes. Liz, Liz is joining us tonight after a long day of teaching in a pandemic and then parent-teacher conferences in a pandemic. And so I, we just want to give an extra shout out to yeah. her because <laughs> bravo Liz bravo oh, yeah, you thanks. you enjoy I, I mean you deserve that cheeseburger more than any oh. person I know so there you go. Oh, absolutely oh sure okay thanks <laughs> I'll take it um but wait where did you get the cheeseburger from oh Apollo burger oh that's a good place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yep I mean the line was long but <laughs> surprisingly long for an eight o'clock on a on a night now oh, we're like going on a night curtain too much. <laughs> <laughs> way, to, way to keep it vague we don't, don't well, these days kind of all let in the together, serial killers right? onto our i mean routine. we don't want people yeah. to really date this so we did mention <laughs> pandemic so it's on the night of the pandemic at eight o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> um okay well i think we're all um appropriately i wish i wish it was like we had beignets or something very you know Ooh, very new well that would be yes. very appropriate mm-hmm. yeah but alas can't can't all be that on top of things. Um, there was a reference that he made to a cheese dip that I thought was pretty funny, and I wish I had some cheese dip, so I should have just lied and said I was having queso because it's cheese dip, but he says this. This is a quote that Ignatius says. I dust a bit when my brain begins to feel from my literary labors, because he writes a lot, and then he made a cheese dip. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, like the ultimate procrastination just to like dust and then like eat some cheese <laughs> like we're all doing that yeah, I get it. Yeah. Uh, oh, all right I so it. now it's time for our new segment take that jeff bezos so i want to learn where aaron bought her copy of a confederacy of dunces let's hear it um okay well this particular copy came from a store called the green hand in portland maine now i've been there Oh, that's right. Yeah. So for anyone who lives like west of the Mississippi, you probably didn't realize that Portland, Oregon is not the only nor the first Portland in the country. Portland, Maine is actually a legitimate city in Maine. And I think it's the largest city in Maine, actually. So um, I've been there and I have been to the Green Hand. It's a great bookstore. Yeah, it is a great bookstore. It's just a cute little, um, you know, independent bookstore. And they have a great collection of Stephen King books because Stephen King was from Portland, Maine. So um, anyway, if you're looking for a lot of Stephen King stuff. I also got, I'm sorry, I have to interject because I just got so excited remembering it. I got a volume of Longfellow poetry from 1901, which was also cool because I believe Longfellow is also from Portland, Maine. Oh, was he from Portland? I know that. uh, There's a house museum. There's a Longfellow house museum in Maine, in Portland, Maine that we went to. Oh, interesting. Because I mean, there's like in Boston, there's... um, you know, like the Longfellow house and, uh, anyway, but, um, yeah, so the green hand is, uh, is a great place to go. So that is where I got my copy of a Confederacy of Dunces. Awesome. Yes. That's so sweet. Very, that's a good find. 
Um, okay. Now, I'm going to attempt to explain this book to you all. And it's a challenge because the book is a little bit mm, hard to explain. Yeah, no kidding. So, um, I'm going to use a portion of a Slate magazine article that just tried to sum it up well. So, here's, here's what they say. It leaves out a lot of details, but that's okay. You'll get the gist. The book explores the misadventures of Ignatius J. Riley, a 300-pound antihero who resides with his mother and is given to leisurely strolls around his native New Orleans, during which he levies his incisive judgments on everything he encounters. As described by Percy in the book's foreword, Ignatius is a slob extraordinary, a mad Oliver Hardy, a fat Don Quixote, a perverse Thomas Aquinas rolled into one. And for all the novel's literary qualities, the sensory-specific perfection of tools described descriptions of New Orleans, the loopy gracefulness of his prose, and his gift for black comedy, it is the creation of Ignatius that stands as its signature achievement. So that doesn't tell you anything it's about, except that Ignatius is his signature achievement. I mean, I, I do think, yeah, like it's just, the, the book's about Ignatius and the, all the kind of different funny characters that sort of intersect with his world and his life, and mm-hmm. he's just so singular and weird and funny and gross yeah. and interesting and yeah know. fat don quixote and it prefers yeah. thomas aquinas it so. sounds like you're saying Con- fat donkey <laughs> <laughs> no i'm not fat don quixote is what you're actually saying <laughs> <laughs> i like my better my version way better <laughs> um this book was published there's an interesting story behind the publishing of this book though so it was written in the 60s it was published posthumously 11 years after tool committed suicide and he was 32 in puerto rico and he took his own life and then his mother found a carbon copy of a manuscript that he wrote that he was trying to publish that no one accepted at that time and she sent that carbon copy so the originals out there just floating somewhere she sent the carbon copy to LSU, and they printed 800 copies. Just, okay, we'll print it. They printed 800 copies, and a year later, it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. So, it's such an amazing story. I love, I, know. <laughs> I loved in the foreword the guy that, that it, it, it's Walter Percy, right? That, uh-huh. that was, she was, kind of approached him to help him shepherd her to publication, and he's like, Fine, yeah, whatever. Like I wasn't expecting it to be good, but then, oh my gosh, it was good. Like it just kept. <laughs> like I was waiting to like you know you get these kind of requests all the time and you you know toss them and out. And it's after his mom. Like yeah, yeah. His mom is his champion, but oh, you Read know my son's book. It's so good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. And he said he kept reading, and it just was waiting for it to get bad, and it never did. So it is definitely a Cinderella story of novels. That's for sure. Yeah. Full surprise. Um, That's amazing. And so sad, you know, too, that he wasn't around to enjoy the fruit of his labors there to see people just take to it and love it so much. It's widely considered a canon for satire or just humor. I mean, people like Sarah mentioned earlier, like writers love like comedy writers. People always tell tell that this book is one of their favorites. It's just one that people like to brag about reading and loving. So yeah. makes sense. Um, before we start wandering around in the meanings and the ideas in the book that make it so amazing and we explore why it possibly won the prize or all those things that people love about it, I want to just hear your, just your general impressions, right? What do you guys think? Sarah, what's your... My take? Your take. Let's you hear know, it. I really really liked it like there was parts where it's like and ignatius is so just deeply unpleasant and it's you spend a lot of time like 
hearing about his valve. <laughs> I just, I couldn't take hearing about the valve. Well, so. Sarah, you better explain to the reader, to our to listeners, the listeners, what the valve is. Yeah, tell us what the valve is. The yeah, so I'll let you, the I'll the I'll let you oh, do gosh, that. I don't really put my mind on how much I hated talking about the valve. Please don't make me explain it. Well, someone has to, and I vote for you, Sarah. Oh, I feel like that's not fair. But um, he just had um, um, an unusual uh, situation in his stomach. He was very in tune with his body, shall we say, and um, and certain environmental triggers would, like, cause his valve to react, and I think that would trigger, like... <laughs> You know, some <laughs> stomach, some tummy trubs, as, we, as you might you might say. So, um, TTs, as as again, that's my favorite uh, gift from the Gilmore guys is uh, the the tummy trubs. So yeah, he is, but he's constantly like talking about the the effect that different stuff has on his valve, and not just in his inner monologue to other people who are like, oh my gosh, he won't stop talking about his valve. <laughs> I mean. It's, <laughs> there could be way, way more disgusting ways to put it. Like, the fact that we have to maybe explain what he's talking about it's true. It's true. Is, is signs that it's not going for the vulgar. It's... It's funny. Uh, it's funny. It, it is totally funny, but it's just like, oh, there's just a lot of talk about the valve. That being said, valve talk <laughs> Let's go back aside, to your opinion. <laughs> yes. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was so funny and just so unique. Like, such a unique voice. I think New Orleans is such a unique setting, such a cool setting. I loved in um, The Awakening, um, right? Like, it's just such an evocative setting. So I love the setting of of New Orleans. And I, I just, I thought, like, the character of his mother, the relationship dynamic with his mother was so funny. The fact that he's doing all these things to try and impress this girl that he has this weird kind of relationship with. And they're both, like, just kind of, like, the psychology there was so interesting and perceptive, and it was just, above all, it was just so, so funny. And it was so intricate, right? Like, one plot thread that you think didn't matter would come in, like, weave back in in such a funny way and show it show itself up later in such a funny, creative way. And, I mean, for all of Ignatius's, you know, <laughs> vow stuff, I just loved it so much. So, yeah, I'm a fan. Okay. I mean, uh, I don't know if I go five stars. Maybe like four point seven. I, I really like. Just it a lot. gonna ask, where just. does it stand on your scale? So four point seven. Yeah, that's high. Mm-hmm. All right, Aaron, where are you at? Uh, I feel like I am taking the unpopular opinion here, but I did not really like this, and you know why? It's because it falls in this category of um, kind of this painful comedy category that just does not sit with me. Um, and because the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like, this guy is an idiot and I cannot even stand him. Like I was so turned off by his behavior that it was hard for me to even appreciate the humor of it and the comedy of it because it was just so like, I kept thinking, why doesn't his mother just like, like, I cannot even imagine being his mother. Right. And allowing him to get away with the stuff that he gets away with. And they talk about, I think, like, early on, right, they talk they talk about how she goes in his room and there's, like, a certain smell in his room or something. I was like, I just can't. Like, I just can't even deal with this. Um, so it was difficult for me to let go of that while I was reading it, even though at the same time, I thought the writing was very captivating. And it was an inter- it was certainly a very interesting story. And as I was reading it, like I kind of knew, you know, I had read the foreword and everything, but 
But as I was reading it, I thought, yeah, this is very much a Don Quixote kind of story where he's just kind of an idiot in so many ways and going about thinking that he is the most brilliant man on earth and the only one out there who's going to be able to save the day. And um, I get, it very much follows that that pattern. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Except what, I think all the Don Quixote references and com- rather not references, comparisons are interesting because I think that, I mean, yes, there's the cluelessness and yes, he is does kind of see himself on this like redemptive, um, you know, like he alone is the one that you know has this sense of righteousness and morality, and it's very medieval and old fashioned, and and but it's I feel like Don Quixote is so optimistic and so like positive, and Ignatius is so negative and so down and so grouchy and so it's so it's almost kind of like the negative image of it right like there's he's an anti-hero right yeah he's kind of yeah he's kind of like don quixote is like a crazy hero right like he's fighting windmills and going around like mm-hmm. you know and his is again his... his his aim is like he's like a happy guy he's like blissful and i feel like i feel like ignatius is so mad at the world so angry at everybody like they're well, both before kind of we like analyze mission. how yeah. angry he is like <laughs> we're gonna do that or we'll talk about those things um to okay. make sure so are you wanting us to, to, to yeah. pause this conversation okay fair yeah. enough put a we'll pin pause the conversation go back anyway let's my... really analyze him more more and more later i like the debate but i'm stopping it go okay. Aaron, fair enough i mean at the end of the day like i would say my rating of this if I'm balancing out my personal reaction to it with my appreciation for it, I'm probably going to end up around a three. Okay. All right. right. Yeah. I mean, I can see where it might be off-putting because it is, it's hard to watch someone just be this dysfunctional, right? But at the same time, like, I also find it just kind of like a train wreck ready. Like, I want to watch it and I want to see him, like, see what he's going to do next and see how the people around him react, react to it to because sure, it's, so- it's so it just intrigued me a lot so when i was reading it there were so many parts that i was just like oh this is just the way he could um observe the world and write about the world through his eyes just really stood out to me like i love when he describes um you know like how he's wearing churchill's muffler that's worth a thousand dollars but really i mean like there's just that's a there or like a cockatoo attacks him (laughs) right there's all these things that just kind of happen and he's just the center of it all and it just makes for kind of this just i mean i want to say comedy of errors because it's kind of like that but i also think yeah i also think it's it's above that too because it's like a has commentary and you can put that commentary on the world through his lens of observation which is just so extreme that it's it just makes for like of course it's a fictitious if it was a real person there's no way you would want to be around this person but in a book setting i just wanted to see more and more like what 
other people did and how they reacted to him. I love when he was in the factory, we'll get there, but just like how he could just like rile everybody up and just, (laughs) I mean, he just had kind of this infectious power and I just wanted to see where it would go next. Yeah. So I don't think I'm going to give it a five. I just don't, but I do think it was definitely like, (sighs) will I give it a five? Ooh. Will she, won't she? What's she going to do, everybody? Okay. I'm going to reserve that judgment till the end (laughs) to keep you listening. (laughs) Because sometimes I I wasn't ready to give it a five, but my guess is by the end of this conversation, I might be. Yeah, well, that's where I was like, I I really loved it. I thought it was brilliant, but I don't know that I could go all the way to five, but maybe... Will know. Sarah change to a five too? Maybe. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. We'll find out in the next few minutes. Aaron where will not. Spoiler. Aaron maybe will not. Aaron. Maybe I don't know. I've been in book clubs where people go in hating it, and the more we discuss it, they're like, "Oh, maybe." Actually, I don't really see you changing on this one. It's not like your whole taste and humor is going to change in a no. few short minutes. So. I mean, like on the cover of my book, it, you know, there's a quote from the Washington Post when it was published. And the Uh quote says, you know, a corker, an epic comedy, a rumbling, roaring avalanche of a book. And I was like, I don't know. Again, like, (laughs) I can appreciate it. I can I can certainly appreciate it. But do Did I you think, laugh out loud at any point? Not really, because I was so Aww. annoyed. I was so annoyed with does the this character. Come back to, our discomfort, to our conversation about the suspension of disbelief, like, because it's too much to like. Because, yeah, if you encountered this situation in real life, it would be really aggravating. But <laughs> I think Liz made a good point there, right? In, in When you're kind of pulled into this fictional world, it just becomes so, um, it just kind of operates on a different level. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I just, the parts that I liked the most, well, I don't know. I mean. Didn't have him in it at all. <laughs> I was going to say that, and I was like, actually, I don't know that that's exactly right. But, um, I, like, but kind of. I mean, when he would come into the story, like, I loved when, you know, like, they're first describing uh, the pants factory, and they're mm-hmm. talking about, um, oh, what's her name? The um, older woman who works there. Trixie? Oh, yeah. Tr- yeah, Miss Trixie. And just the way that, that she is described, and the fact that, you know, she'll be, like, headed off to do something and end up in the bathroom, and, like, just... The way that that whole thing was set up, I thought that was absolutely lovely. Like, it was it was really pretty clever. What but about then- Mrs. Levy with her exercise board? <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. had to... Go- I was trying to find what an exercise board was, and I could not find it. So if someone could enlighten me, what an... It sounds kind of dirty. Okay, anyway, go on. <laughs> anyway, so, like, I thought that... And I thought the way he just... Uh, he wrote about New Orleans was really interesting. And, um, you know, the stuff with the club I thought was really interesting and, and fun and kind of funny to read. But the minute Ignatius Riley shows up, I was like, oh, man, here we go. Like, it just kind of, like, killed the mood for me because he was just so obnoxious. And so, although there were some funny things, like, the, the stuff in the pants factory was... There were some good moments, especially when he first shows up and they're so clueless and so desperate for help that it's a little <laughs> bit of like a... They'll accept it. Yeah, like he's going to change it. everything. He's the worst. Right. I'm so excited for him. So there was, like, oh there was gosh, a little bit of that that I was okay amazing. with. But, he's just throwing um, away the files. 
yeah, but it was just, it was hard for his, and, and maybe that's, maybe that's really my issue with the story. His mm-hmm. character was very hard for me to deal with. The rest mm-hmm. of it I thought was, was uh, great. Okay. All right. See, your opinion, you know, as we talk about it, maybe we'll all evolve. Who knows? Stay <laughs> tuned. Um, let's talk. Let's get into some of this stuff because we have been talking about some of the funnier um, highlights for us. Um, actually, let's start with the highlights. I want to start with that and then we'll dig into some of the deeper meanings. So the the pants factory for sure is a highlight, right? Like oh, yeah. the whole situation around the pants factory. He goes oh, in, yeah. he works there, he instigates his whole, like he throws all the files away and here's this man just trying to like, I don't know. Just even... It- where it was so funny, I thought, was just in the tiniest of details. And, like, it, mm-hmm. his book observes the smallest details in such, like, such a funny, funny way. It, I mean, that's so obvious, right? Like, that, mm-hmm. I think that's just what makes it a successful comedy, right? Is just mm-hmm. his observation of these tiny, tiny details. And I think, like, with Jane Austen or any any good comedy, like, I just think the key is in just, like, just this, in, like, precise observance right and so like even just in talking about like how he like redecorated his space and he was growing these bean plants in the office there's like these tiny details that aren't you know super important to the plot or the whatever right but like they're just so funny in and of itself and like how he hung up a big cross because he's like you know on this kind of almost like religious crusade he feels like the whole world's irreligious and well this big sign right where he like gives himself his uh, title (laughs) Um, I just love I just love the bean plants but um so I just loved all the small details um and I love that Mr. Gonzalez was so desperate um (laughs) for for help of any kind that you know he didn't he didn't realize (laughs) he didn't realize what you know what a monster he'd just hired and and what the situation was. And he was just marveling at what a great worker he was. And meanwhile, Ignatius is just like throwing files away and just like just worrying about his little space and like not doing any work at all. And it Well, was... and you could tell Levy kind of identified with him a little bit because he did like go in there and he was like trying to rescue him. And he's like, this poor guy, look who his mom is. Yeah. And like he never really even blamed Ignatius. He blamed his mom. Right. Like, oh, <laughs> look, no wonder he's like this. Look at his mom. Right. Because like, when he later learned, like went to his house and met the mother yeah. it was funny because really i mean he kind of was on ignatius's side the whole time like did he kind of so what about that made sense to me i'm not sure but it was just funny to see him never really double down and be like oh that guy yeah no he's bad he just kind of the guy that him. tried to get all the employees of the factory <laughs> to rise up and like beat him up and like rise up against him and mm-hmm. oh my gosh the manifesto on the bed sheet it was so good um <laughs> yes. for, for me a highlight um just like the running gag throughout of of officer mancuso so how the book starts mm-hmm. is it's like is um, Ignatius waiting outside of a, a department store for his mother, and he's wearing kind of a kooky outfit. And I love how the book describes it. It was the first thing where I was like, oh, I know I'm going to love this book, where it describes his outfit, and it says, like, it indicated a rich inner life. <laughs> it made me so happy. But um, So anyway, he looks a little weird, and so this, this officer sees him and thinks he's a quote-unquote suspicious character and tries to arrest him, and that kind of sets all of the motion of the plot in sets the plot into motion, right? And all these different things that, that come from this initial encounter with this officer. So anyway, Ignatius doesn't get arrested. Um, and, and officer Mancuso has to go back to his, his, um, precinct 
and like his captains and stuff are just like so abusive of him and they're like you need to bring us real suspicious characters and until you do we're gonna make you walk around in weird costumes <laughs> and like hang out at the train station bathroom <laughs> Oh, the costumes, though. The costumes were my favorite. And 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 what an interesting contrast to, like, to Mr. Gonzalez, right, where Officer Mancuso was so sympathetic to Mrs. Riley, to Ignatius's mother, and was trying to help her and help mm-hmm. help her get out and meet new people and do new things. And take her bowling. Take her bowling. Be part of the bowling league with his Aunt Santa. <laughs> it was so Aunt cute. Aunt Santa, yeah. So, um, yeah, I loved Officer Mancuso. He was a highlight for me. Okay. All right. Um, A highlight for me, and it's kind of weird, but I did just think it was kind of funny, is anytime he and Myrna were sharing letters back and forth, Mm -hmm. those were highlights for me. (laughs) (laughs) She had her opinion of him, and it, it it was, she had very strong theories that, you know, it was all around sex for him, like, or the lack of sex for him, and she just kept telling him to go have sex. Go have sex. Yeah. And so that was funny to me. And then, like... But, like, and he and he was, like, supposedly so disgusted by her, but, like, yeah. also still trying to do all these things to But he was disgusted her. by everything. Right. So oh, I don't yeah. actually think he was disgusted by her. I think is his whole... Well, we're we're going to talk more about his character, so don't get so don't get too far into this. Sorry, I won't talk about it. No, you can't. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I was about to go into something, so I was telling myself. But, like, just his whole mode of being down on everything. So even this woman who... He, he clearly there's a they're they're made for each other in my view right like they 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 should be together and he's still just like ugh her but then he writes her like twenty page letters and when she doesn't hear back from him right away soon she's like where are you what's wrong what's going on like they're just there's this weird codependent relationship and everything they do is kind of about each other which I think mm-hmm. is so interesting yeah yeah and and his mom hated, hated that he was writing her letters but the letters were very like it was like where you kind of got to see well there's a couple places where you got to see who he really was and in one of them was those letters right and he would show his hand pretty pretty clearly in how he would rant about something but like that's not really what he thought right so there's a lot of kind of uh i think peacocking or for not for her but for everybody else and it went against her so anyway i just thought it was kind of in it she was in new york and she he was living like the bohemian new york city lifestyle she and was like of course an activist he, like a political yeah. like you know and so like the his whole thing and trying to like inspire the factory workers to like rise up against he's like and i'm gonna i'm gonna get footage of this and i'll send it to myrna and like (laughs) (laughs) yeah like i I love how that didn't work out he didn't have a ton of i mean he had all these things to say and it was mostly just to like impress her yeah right yeah or not i couldn't tell i think it was i don't think he would admit that to himself but i think that that was the subtext yeah well i think that there's other motivation there but we'll we'll get into that more too but i think yeah, there, that was one of my highlights for me was just watching him rant and write letters to Myrna and just see that kind of go back and forth. It was it was pretty funny. Um, any other? Um, I mean, the the bar scenes were pretty funny to me. The club where they would kind of just like side go, go over there to the side and they we were waiting for those worlds to collide a little bit. And mm-hmm. I liked I liked I really liked that uh, as well. You know how like a character would be talking about something that's happening off, like off stage so to speak about other mm-hmm. characters that we know and how like is that making sense I, that's hard mm-hmm. that's a yeah. hard concept it's like you're seeing these connections you're like the reader's smart you're enough to know wait that's who that is you're not seeing them actually mm-hmm. happen in the in the 
you know, foreground of the action, right? But it's, um, and I feel like a lot of, a lot, you know, you were curious about that. You could set, it get, it get the sense that something's building toward, yeah, everything leading together. And, and I felt like it did come together in a pretty satisfying way. Yeah, I agree. I agree. My other highlight, I mean, is really this the style of which it was written. Like, it's very kind of verbose whenever you're in Ignatius's head. Ooh, boy, and yeah. then it kind of switches when you kind of move out of that. And you just kind of get how he is his own weird kind of quirky brand of genius, if that's how he's really thinking and talking, and that's how his brain is working, and just how it could jump around into those, into that frame of mind and then to just be kind of observational and other things. I just thought the writing style was pretty um, unique and it stood out, which is probably why I won a Pulitzer, but <laughs> they usually do get, yeah. give it Pulitzers because it's, of the writing, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. It can't just because there's a weird character, right. But just the way that like it switched and it just did it so seamlessly that you could like just know who, what, who was, who was being highlighted at that point and like where, he was at. He was locked in his ba- bathroom writing for a long time, and so now we're going to get some really long-winded diatribes here, right? And you just kind of knew it was coming, so. Interesting. Um, I liked his diatribes. Sometimes I was like, oh my gosh, they're still going on, but they were just, <laughs> there was just some kind of diatribe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, well, because um, he was, like, writing this book, right? So it was so yeah. interesting how, and it made me wonder if, how meta it was, right? Like, how much of Tool, the author, how much of himself is he putting in Riley? He's also writing about a friend of his, like a colleague of his. Okay. Like it's kind of like his that. colleague kind of looked like this guy. It was kind of like this guy. So I think it's kind of like a, uh, I could just, a blend. I, could, I could get the sense that he could really embody this idea of this like misunderstood genius that's trying to get mm-hmm. his great work published that nobody understands. And yeah, and, I mean, that's him. And then yeah. the, the <laughs> physical characteristics right. of like who Ignatius was, was like a colleague of his that he worked with. Okay. Or a friend of his. Or something. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the vending, the vent hot dog vendor, his role as a hot dog vendor. <laughs> he just wanted to eat the hot dog. <laughs> I think Sarah's reaction is the best. <laughs> He's like, how many are you going to sell? He's like, I don't know, however my mom buys. I don't know. Like, I'm not going to really make money at this. Are you, what are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I love how it started, sorry. right? He just comes up and he's like, just give me, like, I'm going to have a hot dog. And, like, he's just, like, all of a sudden just kind of, like, amazed at how good hot dogs are when they're supposed to be so disgusting. And he's kind of having this weird epiphany about it. And the guy's <laughs> like, you have to pay me. And he's like, no, I can't, I can't pay you. <laughs> Like, I have to get home. You can't expect me to walk. This was, like, what was he? Anyway, it's just, like, he gets in these these situations that are just, they just escalate. Talk about a comedy of errors, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it just builds in such a funny way. And so, because he couldn't pay for the hot dogs that he, that he. Has to work off. Of that yeah, food. he has to work off the dead. And the next day, he's just, like, walking through the quarter, French quarter, selling hot dogs. <laughs> so, kind of put him, which is really a good venue to just, like, put him all over in this. In this, so uh, this is where I want to move next. Let's talk about New Orleans for a second because the setting of the novel is pretty important here. So New Orleans is the setting. It's widely thought to be the most accurate portrayal of the city this book is. So you can t- actually take a tour that will take you around the city to the highlights of this book. It's like, you know, a walking tour or a driving tour and sounds pretty fun to take, really. That's fun. You can go to the, um, you can go to the, 
department store, DH Homes, department store. Which I don't think like, is actually there anymore, is it? No, it's not. But it was there. And now in front of it is a statue of Ignatius Riley. Oh, I love it. on Canal it. Street. Yeah, that's great. Um, so that's a big, that's where a big, the first scene takes place in the book. So that's important, right? And there's a statue of him in Sarah's favorite outfit, his hunting cap and his baggy pants. <laughs> And this big flannel shirt. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is what, who was it that said this? Hold on. I'll tell you. Oh, this is a, the own, the people who ran the tour um, on their website. They say, um, oh, yeah. So, I have yet to read a book that captures the spirit of New Orleans as fully as this. Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil did a magnificent job of capturing Savannah, but not even Anne Rice is up to Tool's medal. How do you picture, like, so when you, so that all these places that kind of really hone into a place, right? I could really picture New Orleans, and I've never been there, and now I want to go there. <laughs> but how do you picture New Orleans based on his telling? Because he really captured that. I could, I could sense like that care. It almost is a character in the book itself, right? Oh, yeah, so, sure. oh yeah. What were some lasting is. New Orleans images you had? Mine was the vending machine in the French Quarter for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you mean I the think hot, the description. The hot dog cart? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the description of their house, right? When they're when the the um, is it their mom who's first going to the house, and they're describing mm-hmm. like the dead banana tree in the front, and the car that like sticks out of into the like over the sidewalk just a little ways, and uh, just the the way they describe the house and the stove in the house, um, I thought that was I really liked that imagery. Yeah, that I can see that too because they lived in a pretty you know. A different part of the city at the time but yeah interesting for me it was just like it came alive with just people right like whether it's from like mancuso and his his efforts to track down suspicious characters and so you're kind of (laughs) seeing the the city character as he experiences it Uh uh-huh or like just even that opening scene which i think is so vivid like it doesn't surprise me that there's a statue up you know in that spot because it does like just kind of immediately captures this sense of place and when i and i've never been to new orleans either right but i do picture kind of like this place like teeming with people from everywhere and just all kinds of and like maybe a little bit seedy but a little bit colorful and like you know you have the club and like the strip club and mm-hmm. and and just just and just kind of the hustle right like whether it's from the factory workers like for me it like painted such i guess so as opposed like the sense of place was established by by all the people around it yeah. so i don't know if that makes sense but that's no they make of... up the city i get that feeling from new orleans anyway from what i've heard about it and what yeah. i can sense is that it's just made up of so such a diverse group of people and has such like a fun history Kind of I mean, dark fun history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, match of fun isn't there, but just like it, there's just, it's it got character, right? And yeah. so. Well, and that's this, one thing we haven't talked yeah. about that I was going to say is like the experience of like the way they talk about race in this book is quite interesting. And like, I do think New mm-hmm. Orleans has, mm-hmm. has a, obviously a, a, a sad history when it comes to slavery and when, as it was, it was a port for selling slaves is my understanding. And, like and Hurricane Katrina that too <laughs> yeah. and um and the inequality in in that and it talks about like just the experience of like a jones and his and his experience in trying to get a job so he won't be arrested for being a vagrant but he can essentially he i mean he may he may as well be a slave right like mm-hmm. in that yeah. he's working for practically nothing and and 
So I, and all these, all these things, like you talked about commentary, Liz, like it's all, Mm -hmm. but it's all character driven in such a, in such a smart, smart way in that it feels really organic to talk about these things and it doesn't feel preachy. It feels just Mm -hmm. really incisive. Well, and I mean, even some of the language might've been like a little cringy, like, Ooh, that sounds kind of, you know, not words we use, but authentically used for where they are and what time period it was when he wrote it. And so kind of, kind of, I read something about it that said like the dialect that they, they, Mm -hmm. the the characters kind of speak is very accurate and like a, maybe like the best. And I don't remember what it's called. Um, do you know from your research what it's called? No. Um, I read somewhere, I read an article now. I don't remember. So you probably should want to cut this out, but, um, but the, the, yeah, the, the dialogue they speak, the dialect that they speak is really, it's it's unique. It's very mm-hmm. unique to New Orleans, and this is a really good uh, representation of it. So. Yeah. I also love that they talked about how he never left New Orleans, right? He has, like, what, this one bad experience trying to go <laughs> to, like, Baton Rouge or somewhere else. On the bus. And um, on the bus. But his entire life takes place in New Orleans. And I thought that was an interesting... Um, just kind of an interesting detail, right? To throw in there that everything he does is just like kept within this very small world. Even though he's got, you know, even though Myrna is all the way up in New York and New York is a completely different kind of environment. And, uh, you know, and she's tried to get him to go up there, but he just, everything he does is contained within the walls of that city. And I thought that was a really interesting addition to the setting that you're working with because they made a point of pointing that out you know on more than one occasion yeah um that's a good point i think that they really showed they showed that aspect come through like in lots of places right so the, the book is the pretty long theater. sorry hmm? i just thought about the movie the, the scene with him at the movies mm. oh uh, yeah <laughs> right. any movie any movie right yeah um and and the, his interaction with the people there, but also just, I mean, yeah, you could just, you could just picture it. You could almost just taste it. It was just so, it was so interesting. Yeah. You mentioned it was kind of commentary. I mean, it was, there was commentary on race. I thought another aspect of the book that, that I mean, some people were saying that what the, when they t- have to tell people what this book is about, they say it's about money. So, I mean, I think there was a lot of commentary on money. Maybe it was Ignatius's, like, rants about the middle class or how they earned money but like how did you see I mean how did you see money being kind of a plot point or commentary point in this book I mean I definitely see it being a plot engine right like Mm -hmm. everyone's chasing money yeah Uh yeah yeah I mean the book starts and Ignatius is just like this overeducated slob that lives with his mom and doesn't have a job right and and he it he they end up getting in a car accident and for her to pay off the damages of this car accident that was essentially his fault she makes him go out and get a job right and then and and so i i I guess i do see it as kind of like it's it's his initial quest and he feels so put upon by it too which is just so funny but um his quest to 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 get a job and his... Or to look like he has a job. And so one of the things he rants about a lot is just, you know, well, lots of things. But here's one where he says, however, I do not wish to witness the awful spectacle 
um, of people moving up toward the middle class. I consider this movement a great insult to the integrity of people, but I'm beginning to sound like the Beards and Parringtons and will soon totally forget Levy Pants. The commercial muse for this particular effort, a project for the future, could be a social history of the United States from my vantage point. The Journal of a Working Boy meets with any success at the bookstalls, but I shall perhaps (laughs) sketch a likeness of our nation with my pen. Our nation demands the scrutiny of a completely disengaged observer like your working boy, and I have already have in my files a rather formidable collection of notes and jottings that evaluate and lend a perspective to the contemporary scene. Like, he just rants and observes and writes notes about what it's like to be this boy that works now, this working boy, <laughs> right? And how he, he does finish those those ramblings from your good working boy, which did just mm-hmm. make me laugh every time. <laughs> Um, and, and how eventually he doesn't really want the job of being in the factory. He wants to tear down the factory. And then he goes on just, he's like, well, I don't look down on hot dog vendors. Why would I look down on hot dog vendors? That's a working job. But he hot doesn't dogs want to are sell. great. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, hot dogs are great. That's wonderful. But he actually doesn't want to sell the hot dogs. Right. It's just, and then how much Jones wants to actually earn money. It's just kind of an interesting, like. And the commentary from like Gus Levy, right? Mm-hmm, who owns mm-hmm. the pants factory, but can't be bothered to work there or make it a success and just feels like encumbered with this burden that you know (laughs) it's just an interesting an interesting vantage point from everyone right like Mm -hmm. oh yeah i mean his poor mom (laughs) or even or i know his poor mom but even like also bad for his mom like darlene and lana lee and their you know ways of like what opportunities and poor Miss Trixie like uh-huh. there's mm-hmm. not there's not a lot of we I don't think he was necessarily trying to make a commentary about the economic opportunities of women but let's look at what they are in this book mm-hmm. it's not great yeah. you're either a yeah. pornographer or a stripper or like a daffy senile old lady who needs to be retired but like is being forced to work because you're some lady rich ladies charity project right like it's mm-hmm. it's really interesting or you're Myrna <laughs> who, who isn't doesn't working. want money she's at just, all yeah, just, yeah. Not doing yeah. It, but yeah I did think it was interesting like Jones's commentary kind of touching on the racing a little bit too mm-hmm. like I felt like there were um like he was using Jones as his vehicle for the racial commentary right because Jones was very outspoken and um even if he was kind of muttering things under his breath but he would make very pointed comments and um that always you know got a rise uh, out of, uh, <laughs> who was the, why can't I remember the club owner's name? Lana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There we go, Lana. Um, anyway, and so it, like, their, their react, or their interactions back and forth, I thought were interesting, right? And just the way that, mm-hmm. but I just thought, like, Jones's character and his very outspoken nature seemed to be a very clear way that Tool was trying to convey some of those thoughts on racial inequity. Yeah. And he did a good job with it. It was just, it, but didn't feel preachy like Sarah said earlier. And like you, no, not mentioned. at all. So it was like I think that it provides the book some substance and merit beyond the like dark humor and the valve talk. So <laughs> you know, that's important. Um, the title of the book. We're gonna now switch gears to analyze Ignatius. I think we've hinted at some things about him, but there's a lot to say about him since that's what the book is mostly about. The title of the book comes from an epigraph by Jonathan Swift that says, when a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign that the dunces are all in confederacy against him. So the main character of this book is Ignatius J. Riley, who truly believes that dunces everywhere 
are in a confederacy against him. <laughs> like, I think the way he looks at the world and sees how he's so excellent and everybody else is the dunce and against him and we're, the police are against me, my mom's against me, the everyone's against him, right? So he just sees this so clearly. I just think it's an interesting... Um, I love the title, and, and I love that, how and yes, that people are that. against him, but just like the way that the world is is against him. Like even going back, yeah, to like the movies, right? And how he's just like horrified at everything he sees, like, and that yeah. everyone else likes it, and they're so stupid, they don't understand. He would go to movies and sit there and yell out during the movie how stupid this is and like what that's not even funny or whatever he'd say how right like in the is, middle of whatever he was just like disgusted by the movies and when yeah just yeah. yell thing and the, and the employees are like okay he's being especially bad tonight like what do we do this time you know what I and mean? he would go every week it was a weekly appointment to just go sit in a movie he hated and just be disgusted by it yeah. yell at it i know so that's a really good example of how he saw this against him but he pursued it yeah well and to some extent i mean i kind of feel like as much as like ignatius bothered me as a character there were there were times when i was like i don't have a lot of sympathy for the rest of the characters because they kind of are dunces like in the way they're acting right like like poor mr gonzalez like (laughs) sweet man but just like completely inept in many ways at doing his job and trying, right? But just, or even like his mom, like just the way that people would interact with him, uh, with Ignatius, and the way that people would like, and even Officer Mancuso, right? Like the fact that, you know, uh, like he talks about how he, he gets a tip that, that there's stuff going on at the club, or they think it's like a drug front or something. And the uh, his sergeant's like, oh, whatever, we don't think you're right. Like, go get in this costume and go find us some suspicious characters. And then they send men to go follow up on his tip without him. And it's like, it's just the oblivious nature of a lot of these characters was really interesting, right? Because it's like they're sympathetic characters and you have this like very outlandish character in Ignatius. But you also have these other characters who are, in a way kind of oblivious and kind of inept at whatever it is they're doing. Even Mr. Levy, right? Like can't care less about the factory and just like the only reason he's doing well in life is because he inherited his father's money and just spends it traveling and golfing and doing whatever he wants to do. So anyway, I just thought that was kind of an interesting yeah, so maybe the dunces are really, you know, not against him, but he's like, this is what I'm dealing with? They're not, they're, okay. they're not just yeah. in <laughs> I mean, I don't think that Ignatius was self-aware enough or aware enough to really pick up on that as it was actually happening. But it was an interesting contrast with his, like, self-proclaimed, you know, genius and the way he's looking at the world. And then you have all these other characters that aren't really like helping their cause they're not really counterbalancing in a way that really proves ignatius wrong like it's it's just kind of an interesting but i don't know that ignatius is with it enough to like draw on that correctly i don't know if that makes sense Mm -hmm. no it's true i think that it's a lot of people that are the dunces right (laughs) and yeah but i do think he's the leader of it i think the point though is to or a point not the point but an important point is how we see Ignatius in relief or contrast to the world around him versus how he sees himself versus how mm-hmm. others see him. I think it, it 
it's about him, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and 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 how this all this is all about about him at the end of the day, and and what like to what degree is is he, you know, like obviously his his problems are self inflicted, um, and he. <laughs> like he's his own worst enemy but he like Aaron says he's not self-aware enough to to recognize that and he, all he sees is you know the world out to get him and i just i just wonder what that like i don't know like i i do think that it's it's a it's a obvious we talked about like New Orleans as the character and mm-hmm. like this setting and like all these people and it is kind of this interesting tapestry but it just comes back to what they're saying about him and I don't even necessarily know what they are saying about him I'm still still kind of sitting with me but I do um I do think that like there's more to Ignatius than just like flatulence and like angry tirades and laziness Uh right like there's a real depth there like there is he's obviously a smart guy he's just kind of troubled and frustrating and and you know <laughs> kind of indulgent and over obviously overindulgent and um and he has this mother that is enables him but loves <laughs> him and but at the end doesn't love him because she tries to get him sent to, to and he runs away from her <laughs> i know i know but like all his life right she had totally like she sacrificed so he could get a master's degree and like you mm-hmm. know and I don't know. I just think it's it's just I feel like I want to read it again, right? Like I feel like <laughs> one read is not enough to get everything that it's saying by any means. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's high I'll praise. That. I mean, I do think that it's interesting. There was I like I kept thinking as I was reading, like what got Ignatius to this point, right? Like how do you how do you just like become this thirty year old man who's sitting at home uh, doing nothing with your life? But you clearly can think and you have thoughts on the world and you're you know like he's got the makings of an academic there to some extent so he's a good writer yeah and and he's not yeah he's not a horrible writer so so how do you get how do you get to this point where you're so because i mean there was certainly an element of laziness there like unquestionably but there was also like his his disgust or disdain for some of the direction the world was heading wasn't entirely unfounded um you know and so like how do you but how do you get to that even if it was how do you get to that point where you're so bothered and annoyed with the world in general right like because we don't really hear we don't see how he got where he was he just is that way right from the beginning of the story and so what is it that gets you there especially because like his mom isn't that way and it doesn't seem like really many other people in his life are that way so how did he get to be that that way you know i I mean i don't want to blame his mom no but i kind of want to blame his mom (laughs) well i think it's complicated right tell tell me expand on that in in any i was gonna say i i think that it's with any person right like there 
they're complicated and they're not you know necessary like they're, it's not just their own motivations and their own willpower and their own whatever that's that's creating their opportunities that's creating their life they're also a product of the people around them and they're a product of the places around them and the and the environment that shaped them I guess we're going to go into nature versus nurture here right so I don't know <laughs> but I just think that uh the it makes you wonder of what what the nature con- contributed to his to, to his being that way. That's what I was wondering. Well, well, there could be a whole bunch of things with nature, but I do see, maybe I'm just fresh off parent-teacher conferences, so <laughs> I don't know. But I do see this happen a lot as a teacher, right, where a kid is like, well, I want to do this, Mom. And she's like, yeah, you're right. I don't want to fight with you on this either, so do what you want. Like, you're those are habits, like, on especially someone, he's gifted. He can t- You can tell he has. he's a smart person. Mm-hmm. But he was never, like, and he, he could academically pursue it, but, like, he didn't, there was some, I mean, it's not, there's also some nature, as you put it too, Sarah, but, like, the fact that his mom didn't just, like, put her foot down at some point on something and be like, no, you need to go get a job, not just because you hit the car. Like, she clearly knew how to do it now, but she'd been, like, pushed to it. Also, they, like, had a weird relationship, right? To the point that he, like, sacrificed yeah. his own relationship with Myrna at first, right? Like, there's a weird kind of, you know, mother-son relationship there. And then there's a weird relationship with Myrna. A weird's a weird... A weird's not the word to use because it's very, you know, like, casting a judgment on something, I guess. But I just think that they're, those two relationships are so incongruous. They don't go well together. Those two don't get along. He's kind of in this middle position, and he can't please either of them. And they both enable him or bring out the worst in him in different ways. And so I do kind of blame, not blame them. That's not their fault. They're not doing something necessarily wrong. But if at some point something had been different, he might be different too, obviously, I right? Think you bring up something that... I was thinking about, and I don't know if this was any intention of of the authors or not, but it was something that um, resonated with me. And when you talk about, like, you know, here's Ignatius walking around just passing judgment on everything, right? Every person, every tiny thing. Everything is indicative of his moral and intellectual superiority and everyone else's inferiority. And he's Mm -hmm. judging everyone constantly. And is, like, is, is the author inviting us to judge him and, like, Obviously, he has no authority, moral authority, to judge these other people whose lives he doesn't understand or who's, you know, he's just so myopic <laughs> and in his own head. So me being afraid to call them weird is <laughs> yeah. the opposite of Ignatius. <laughs> I don't he know. would not be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it just made me wonder, right? Like, you know, ah, like I, I, I don't, do, are we, are... He's a fictional character, so of course we Yeah, I was going to say, we're not actually going to solve this, and we don't have time to. <laughs> but it's so like, when Sarah reads it again, she yeah, can yeah, analyze you, it I'll for us. I'll give you my thoughts. But I do think that um, it's interesting, right? It puts us in the position to almost be judgmental as he's being judgmental, and, mm-hmm. and his judgment is ridiculous, right? So is ours too? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, maybe, I mean, maybe. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe like, and we also can like take a stand. I mean, we've all, I've done this before, where you feel like you're gonna like fight the, you're gonna go off on this, even though you don't even feel that strongly. But the next day about it, right? <laughs> right. But the day before, like, don't get me started on this topic. I will go for a long time, and then the next time, like, I don't care, right? Like, I just think sometimes you just people get going on something, and he did that, right? That's what he would do, and then he just kind of liked to hear himself talk, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Or right. <laughs> You're good. Well, it also made me think about like how, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm exp- extrapolating too much into this, but there, there is something to be said for like, you derive so much like personal fulfillment from doing quality work, right. And finding a way to give, to contribute to society and give back to society. And so sometimes as I was reading, I wondered if his indictments on society weren't a function of his uh, disassociation from society and just the fact that he wasn't really part of it in any in any real yeah, way. No one accepted him. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, you know, and so uh, so his his way of coping with that was to just pass judgments on the horrible direction that society was heading because <laughs> it was heading somewhere without him. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know. So there were times when I kind of wondered about that that yeah. angle of it too. I like that. I like that perspective on it. Guys, there's so much we could actually say. I want to say more. Well, now let's move on and talk about the pop culture segment. Because pop culture, as much as Ignatius Riley hated it, it is interesting to talk about here with this book. So (laughs) he went to the movies to mock them. But was so they went to see some movies in the book. We'll talk they they talk about Billy Rose's Jumbo. The Touch of Mink by with Doris Day. So both of those movies were possible movies he went to see and made fun of. So that's kind of rude. Um, as I read the book, I kept finding myself wondering if there was an actual movie of this book. Did you guys ever wonder that yes, as you read I it? Oh, totally. It. It's it's rife. Like it it is filled with things you could throw into film. But there's a story here. It's actually called um, uh, Development Hell. <laughs> it is not been adapted into a movie because every time it happens something happens so it, it turns out every there's a curse it, it's called development hell here <laughs> there's a curse so let me tell you a couple of the t- attempts and you can tell me if you think there's a curse here so um in 1982 so just right after it was published harold ramus um went to write and direct an adaptation that would star john belushi as ignatius that been so and good. richard pryor as burma jones but uh, Belushi died later that year, and so they couldn't, or later, before they got to make it, and they couldn't make that movie then. So then John Candy and Chris Farley were both touted for the lead, but just like Belushi, they both they all died at early ages, leading many to ascribe a curse to the role of Ignatius. Pretty dark, right? Mm-hmm. Like, dark. that part's pretty weird and sad, and especially... Because all of those people, I can see playing Ignatius really well. But also, too. yeah, there's kind of, that's a sad curse. Now, John Waters was supposed to direct an adaptation that had Divine that would star as Ignatius, but uh, that didn't go off the ground. Um, Stephen Fry, he at one point was commissioned to adapt the book. Was he going to um, play Ignatius? I don't know. I don't think so. I think he was. I don't know. That didn't. It wasn't clear. He was sent to New Orleans to get background to do a screenplay. And uh, right when he was sent there, it didn't it didn't work out, and it so he stopped doing it then. John Goodman, who was actually from New Orleans, was slated to play Ignatius at one point. I can see that one too. Um, so you can see this has been in development hell, but it doesn't end. There's more. <laughs> um, Steve Soderbergh um, you, wanted you to make Steven it. You and Soderbergh are like on like Steve terms. We're Steve. We're, it's cool. That's how <laughs> you I talk guys about are just it. good pals. Um, he was going to make it, and he was in 2005, and it was going to star Will Ferrell as Ignatius and Lily Tomlin as Irene, and it, they had a staged reading of it and everything. Um, Paul Rudd was there as Officer Mancuso. 
Um, yes. Most Deaf is Burma Jones. Rosie Perez is Darlene. Olympia Dukakis was going to play Miss Trixie. <laughs> so good. Oh, I Alan, love it. And this is, this is my favorite. Alan Cumming was going to play Dorian Green. Nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg was going to be George and Claude Robichaux. Anyways, there was a pretty good cast. And, Wait, Jesse Eisenberg uh, was going to be Claude Robichaux? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't yeah. Claude Robichaux an old man? Right, who's going to play, like, three parts? Okay. <laughs> or he played, like, three parts in the reading. Anyways, the point is, is all those people did this, like, staged reading for, like, a charity thing, but because their movie hadn't gone off the ground, right? But here's the reason why it didn't get made. Because they had all this cast made, they did a reading, there was a script and everything. Um, so here are the reasons, according to this article I read. Um, disorganization, lack of interest, and the Louisiana State Film Commission was murdered... The State Film Commission. Someone was the head of it. The head of it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And the devastating effects of Hurricane Katrina also came about right then, and so they couldn't make it. So someone asked Will Ferrell why, and he's like, it's a mystery. So. Oh. That's intense. Soderbergh himself said, I think it's cursed. I'm not prone to suspicion, but I think the project has bad mojo. So, no movie. No movie. There's been some stage productions. Um, one was in Boston where Nick Offerman, Offerman, sorry, played Riley. So that would be pretty. That was pretty recent, too. wasn't it? Yeah, that was like, in that 2015. Was, that was post Parks and Rec, so he had kind of had like the Ron Swanson persona in there too. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So. Clearly, it's not meant to be in a movie, but I think we can all dream and picture someone playing that role, but maybe the role is just too big for pop culture. Maybe. Maybe. He does just kind of have this larger-than-life kind of thing. That does sound pretty, like some pretty bad mojo. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Our only remaining question, how did it... Actually, no, there's two remaining questions. How did it inspire you? And then we'll have to see what our ratings were. So the remaining <laughs> yeah, question... We did how, promise people that... I know. I, I can't... I, I'm, I'm holding on to my word. How did Ignatius or Confederacy of Dunces inspire you, Erin? Well, I was inspired never to date someone like Ignatius Riley. That was... <laughs> like, I don't I don't want to be the Myrna Minkoff to an Ignatius Riley. That's what I was inspired by. All right. I like it. Okay. I'll take it. That's that's, a, that's actually a pretty good... <laughs> don't write letters to someone who is gross like that. Okay. <laughs> Noted. Find yourself in, in, in entangled in a, in a situation like that. It's not a good okay. one to be in. Yeah. Sarah, what was your inspiration? To read the book again? <laughs> I mean, I do want to read the book again. I do think that this is... I think, honestly, reading anything more than once, as any you're going to pick up new stuff and it makes it richer, so... I don't think that's necessarily anything special about this, but um, what I was inspired to do, I mean, maybe go to New Orleans, right? Like, I've never been, and it did paint a pretty vivid picture, and I I would love to see it someday soon, so. Go, well, go I think we should meet. go together, because yes, you just took mine. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so well, that's I'll what come with you. Do. I do want to see the statue. <laughs> hey. Have, you, have right. you been in New Orleans, Aaron? I have not, actually. Um, well, we'll have to go and check out some bookstores. Podcast trip. Oh, I bet they've got good bookstores down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- that would be fun. I want to go there. I also, I guess, am inspired. This is way not that inspiring to anyone else, but should just show you a glimpse of my world. 
I want to go watch the new episode of Married at First Sight that's on my DVR that because is taking it's in place New in, Orleans. <laughs> that's taking place in New Orleans. There's some characters on that show. <laughs> I love that show. I don't blame so, you. So uh, there we go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> have you watched that show? That show is legit interesting. No, I have no intention or desire to watch that show. You're missing but out. More power to the both of you. You are absolutely missing out. It is like, hold on, like. That that show is not like a trashy reality show. We're not Mm-mm. talking about like um, Real Housewives or The Bachelor. Like it's a very interesting premise, and it's executed in a really like naturalistic, interesting way. It's like normal people, and it's fascinating. Well, that's probably true, and I commend it for that. But uh, with all my <laughs> spare time in my life right now, I'm not going to add Married at First Sight to that list. <laughs> I don't blame you. That's fair. Um. All right. All right. Now that we know what's inspired us to do, I guess it's time for us to see if our ratings have gone up. Sarah, you first. Did you change your rating? Is it still 4.7? I feel like I'm holding tight at 4.7. Yeah. Okay. What about you? Guys, I'm going to give it a five. (gasps) Nice. (laughs) What, what, What pushed it over the edge? Yeah, explain that. Um, so a lot of like all the reasons I said I liked it earlier, but I think the more I kind of thought about Ignatius's character, and I did think our discussion of like where, like how he became this way, really kind of got me more intrigued in him. And I, the fact that I could have gone on for about an hour longer talking about him and what was funny about the book shows that there was something really well done about the book. It deserves a five in my mind. All right. I'll buy it. Okay. So, great. I'm glad I could hold out till the end. A good discussion was had because it made me change my opinion even more. It helped me prove it. <laughs> and for the record, I did not change. Mm, well, that's fair. Um, so, are you one of this book's cult fans do you want to take the walking tour of new orleans with us it can be a podcast trip it'll be fun um come find us on twitter instagram and facebook at reading with rory or join the conversation on our website at readingwithrory.com we would love to hear from you we love to see all the different places and people who love our books and who love listening to people talk about books so come join the conversation too Also, don't forget to leave us a review and tell us and others what you think of the podcast. It does not need to be a screed like Ignatius Ignatius would write. (laughs) We can be a little less verbose. I mean, I'd be a little maybe a little bit nicer. I'd be pretty curious to see what you have to offer on that. And you know, if like you have an Ignatius style review to leave of our podcast, I would. Would Ignatius be like a horrible internet troll? Yes. Oh, Oh, he would be a horrible internet troll. (laughs) Absolutely. Just don't leave us a trolling there. review yeah. but if you want to leave it in the style of Ignatius Riley in terms of ver- like being verbose and his verbosity yes whatever <laughs> then we would absolutely welcome that okay excellent um speaking of verbosity uh next time on reading with Rory we're going to be reading the Count of Monte Cristo so because it's long get it it's <laughs> yeah you got paid by the word so anyway <laughs> We'll catch you later.